Well, amen, church. Uh, it's good to have you here this morning. Uh, you know, um, we, we've been working ourselves through the book of Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And as we've noticed, um, it, it sort of moves between um, teaching segments. Uh, there are, I think, five of them. And I think we got out of the fourth one. We went uh, just a while, or, or maybe the third one. And then um, it moves through uh, various um, um, activities of Jesus doing all kinds of wonderful things. And there's always a response. And, and a lot of the responses are from the Pharisees and the scribes. And increasingly, as we move along, um, the animosity, the hostility towards Jesus just gets stronger. And so um, there, that, that can be rather intense at times. So I think last week we were talking some about how um, Jesus was out doing ministry and the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, now by and large the Pharisees that were often found and the scribes with them were found in Galilee and out away from the city, but these were actually centered in Jerusalem. And they come out and they're, they're kind of, you know, looking into something. So they probably represent maybe even the, um, the, the priesthood uh, from Jerusalem. And they want to know, does Jesus teach his disciples to uphold the tradition of the elders? They have the laws, and then they have the traditions, which they very much equate with the laws. And, of course, um, what they really wanted to know is, do the disciples wash their hands ceremoniously um, before they eat? And, um, you know, it's, it's a long way to go to find out. They had heard Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to wash their hands. Thus, he's falling out of agreement with um, the traditions of the elders. And, of course, Jesus kind of turns it on them. He says, ultimately, you guys, you disobey the very law of God by demanding that your disciples adhere to certain excuse me, traditions. And the particular one he points out there is he says you're commanded to honor your mother and father, which has had a very practical outworking. You were to care for them and as they were aged. And um, what you've done instead is you've kind of locked all your funds of your disciples into being devoted to the temple, um, sort of given to God. And thus, they could use them and not help their parents, and then they go to the temple afterwards. And so thus, you actually teach them to disobey the law of God and many things you do, such as this. Well, the Pharisees leave, and the disciples come up, and they say, it's interesting that the, the, what goes between the Pharisees of, of, and, and the disciples of Jesus, and evidently the Pharise disciples continue to talk with them, and they say, you do know the Pharisees are offended. And, of course, that is the last thing in the world that Jesus uh, cares about. He says, just leave them be. They're blind guides to the blind. And then he goes on and says, look, it's not what goes into the stomach. It's, it's particularly unwashed hands, ceremoniously unwashed hands, that's the issue. It's what comes out of the heart. Evil thoughts and murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile a person. This is what we need to be cleansed of. But Jesus was not really done making his point. He's going to continue to do so, if not to the Pharisees, then certainly to his disciples. And it brings us to our text this morning, Matthew 15, verses 21 through 39. So if you all will stand with me, we're going to pray, and then we are going to read these, uh, this text, um, and then to begin to talk about it. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Uh, we thank you indeed, Emmanuel has come. We thank you, Father, that we have seen Jesus. 
Uh, we thank you, as was shared, we're coming on upon the season. We particularly focus upon his incarnation. We do pray that this morning, as we look at your word, um, that you bless us to understand it. So that is a saving word. It is a sanctifying word, a word we grow in Christ wherever we are in him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Okay, church. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there. And he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain. And he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet. And he healed them. So that the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind singing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd. And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over, those who were, oh, those who were to eight were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Amen. Church, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. This is the word of our God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. You know, they often heard the phrase location, 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 very much in terms of real estate. The location matters here with what Jesus is doing. Um, you're going to see uh, there's a theme that kind of moves between all of the verses. They all kind of come together as ultimately a response to what we're seeing um, in Israel and particularly among the Pharisees. So Matthew 15, 21 and verses 22. Let's look at those again. And it says, And Jesus went away. From there, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman 
from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Jesus says, departs. He says, literally, he withdraws into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, whenever it says that Jesus does that, it's usually for a purpose. We saw in previous weeks, he withdrew across the, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, probably to, to, to deal with John the Baptist being beheaded and having to deal with sometimes with the disciples. And sometimes it can be a tense situation. He's trying to uh, sort of dissipate a little bit. And some have wondered about that. The things are getting intense with the Pharisees, so he's trying to put some distance within him. Um, most think that maybe not that that's what's going on here. We have to remember Jesus is a prophet. I mean, he's much more, but he is a prophet. And what the prophets do is with their words, they reveal God's will, but also they reveal God's will and their attitude towards Israel through their actions. And thus you have Ezekiel um, laying on one side for 390 days and laying on the other side for 40 days while he's rebuking Jerusalem. Uh, you have Jeremiah building a little fort and laying siege to it. Um, you have Hosea being commanded to marry a prostitute. Um, and then you have Jesus going in and pushing over the money changers. It's not just an aspect of anger, but it's a, a picture of what God thinks what is going on here. So when the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of God gets up and departs for Tyre and Sidon, it says something. He's not just crossing the Sea of Galilee and dealing with something on the shore. He's going into pagan land. And it says something to the people. Um, Israel is rejecting him, even though it's the mission there, as we're going to see. And yet, um, he's looking forward to the great, ultimately, commission to the Gentiles. And it says that a Canaan woman came out. The, you know, the word Canaan, uh, Canaanite, or, or reference to Canaan, is mentioned 162 times in the Bible. You want to know how many times it is in the New Testament? One. This is the only place where that word is used in the New Testament. That word is a catch-all term for the people groups that we know inhabited the land um, given to Israel by God. You can't escape them if you read the Old Testament, especially the earlier, uh, the, the, the earlier parts of it. They go back to 3000 B.C. They're a very cultured race, um, very similar. They're part of the Phoenicians, and they, they, they did a lot of um, um, navigating throughout the, the, the known world at that time. And really with the Egyptians, we think that's where you got your first alphabet. But in terms of Israel... They are the arch enemies. They are in a death struggle with Israel, and they were to be cleaned out of the promised land before Israel came in. And so they are a strong contrast to what the Jews should be, and a strong, stronger uh, contrast is now being made between this Canaanite woman which Matthew wants to make sure, technically, in fact, even the title above that section, you know how you often get little headings? Mine says Syrophoenician woman. Tyre and Sidon are the areas that we would associate with um, today, Lebanon and Syria. And they're in the region. I don't think he went to the actual cities, but he's in the region. But Matthew chooses to call her a Canaanite. So everybody knows the contrast. And it begins a dialogue that really grabs our attention. She cries out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. A demon is cruelly torturing my daughter. Now, this is terribly surprising. We are told elsewhere that people from Tyre and the regions of Tyre and Sidon actually came to 
probably in the Galilee area, Israel, when they would hear that Jesus was preaching. They, the word about him and what he did was getting out throughout the world. There in the Decapolis, as we're going to see, which is the Ten City region, the people were coming in, and they'd probably come to the, the Galilee area because it was very Gentile-ish. Maybe as many as half of the people that lived in the Galilee were, were actually Gentiles and were not Jews. But what she says definitely grabs your attention. She calls him Lord three times. And you could say maybe that was just a great act of respect. In some cases it is. But when she ties it with another word or phrase, son of David, it jumps out at you. You remember, the beginning of Matthew's gospel is all about the son of David. The Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Joseph was called the son of David, but it's only mentioned a few other places. In a couple places, blind men who can see nothing yell out, have mercy on me, son of David. And a few places, the crowd shout to Jesus, is this the son of David? And in those cases, the Pharisees jump in there and say, no, he's a demon-possessed man. But here, a Canaanite woman calls him the son of David. The last place it's mentioned, actually, Jesus forces it into the Pharisee's mouth. He says, whose son, just a few days before he's to be crucified, he's challenging some of the Pharisees, and he says, whose son is the Christ? And they go, son of David. That's the closest you're going to get it from the Pharisees. And then he gets in, why does the David call him Lord? Why don't you call him? Lord. And here this woman brings these together. She says, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. She sees what the blind see, but the Pharisees cannot see. In verses 23 and 24, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus is unique for the kinds of things he says, how he responds to people. He's unique here. He doesn't respond at all. And as one of the commentators said, we ought not to be surprised and ought not to make us fearful. A lot of times God doesn't seem to answer us, but it doesn't mean he loves us or cares about us any less. He actually spoke something similar when a centurion, another Gentile, came up to him in chapter 8 and said, come and heal my servant. He says, okay, I'm going to come. But here he says nothing. She continues to implore him. The disciples, and the pictures, I think she's a bit off, and the disciples are between her and, and, and Jesus. There may be some other people around. But the disciples say, do something, send her away. And, and I think some have thought, just send her off. But I'm not sure they weren't saying, give her what she wants. Heal, do what you've got to do. But let's stop this. But Jesus does finally respond, and he turns to the disciples, and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't you remain, remember your commission? Christ looks out, and he sees the harvest is now ready. It's time for the harvest. Pray that the Lord, the Lord of the harvest sends out workers. Then he sends out the workers into Israel. He empowers the disciples, and he says, don't go the way of the Gentiles. Do not go to the cities of the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel because it is their time and it's a last time. Their time is ticking down. You're down the last few seconds of the, the national call of Israel and the Messiah has come and so he's sending out, go there. 
And so he tells them, that's my call. I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew 15, 25 through 28. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the, the, the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, a woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The Canaanite woman continues to persist. It says she came and he knelt before him. Evidently, she, she, I'm sure they went back to her and said, this is not the time for, the, I don't know, if the, the, you know, they, they mentioned um, the dogs and this, but this is, he's just for Israel at this point. Nonetheless, the next thing we see, she goes and throws herself before him. I think some of your versions say she, she worshipped him, but I, I don't know if that's the best way to look at it right now. It certainly was in her heart. And she says, Lord, help me. It's about her daughter. Don't know what her daughter will eventually believe after this, but she is on her faith going, Lord, help me. And Jesus does that response. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And here, by here, we don't mean the feral wild dogs. We're talking about the house dogs, the pets that would, would be beneath the table. And they would get scraps from the table. And we might go, it's insulting, but it does not bother Jesus. At this time, he's understanding where the Gentiles are, where Israel is. But a crumb of grace from the table of Jesus is more than all the riches of the world. We're getting ready to uh, go into the, uh, the Advent season, and there's a, there's a quote from one of C.S. Lewis's book um, where they're kind of talking about that, and one of the characters say, inside the stable was something as small as it was than, uh, that was inside the stable is bigger than everything that was outside of it. And so she says, yet, Lord, even the dogs, and she receives the blessings of Christ. A woman, your faith is great. It is done as you wish. Here's another place you can rack your brains a little more. How many times has Jesus called somebody's faith great in the Bible? Twice. The first one we studied a number of weeks ago, is the, it was the centurion. And it was something similar. Again, they both are asking for on behalf of another. But the centurion comes out and he shows an understanding of who Jesus is. I know what authority is. You have the authority. You just speak and it's done. And Jesus looks at him and says he was astonished. He marveled. To make Jesus marvel, you got to do that's gonna be that, that guy ought to be a saint. He says, well, he is. But he marvels at it and says, you have great faith. Now he looks here and goes, oh, woman, the word marvel's not there. But he, it got his attention, you can say, put it that way. He says, your faith is great. The disciples are repeatedly told how little their faith is. The Pharisees have everything but faith. She has nothing, she has only faith. Y'all do know the apostles, the disciples were not called to be apostles because they had great faith. They were called because God has a sovereign purpose for them and their faith would become great one day, I'm sure. But the only people he ever says that's a great faith are two Gentiles. The centurion, who was in Israel at the time, and now this woman. Verse 29. Jesus went on from there and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. 
And he went on up the mountain, and he sat down there. Now, this is going to be one of those location, location. We know he's in Tyre and Sidon. He's probably remaining in Gentile area. He's probably coming, crossing over, and he's going to ultimately come down, uh, probably cross the Jordan north of the Sea of Galilee, and just come down with an area that eventually we know is called the Decapolis, which is ten cities. Nine of them are actually all east of the Jordan, and they're ten independent cities. They're all under the, um, Rome's um, authority, and there's a lot of space between them. and had a lot of desolate, uh, not not really um, populated between them. And so he's kind of in that area. And so when it says he's going along the Sea of Galilee, it means he's touching in the northeastern part of it. And it says it's very deliberate. He goes up on the mountain and he sits down. Now this is the language that means that Jesus is getting ready to teach. It's the language that um, Matthew uses before the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm assuming he's going up there, he's going to sit, and he's going to start teaching. But now he's not teaching the Jews in the Sermon on the Mount. He's now teaching Gentiles, or a largely Gentile crowd. We don't know what he said, but I'm sure it had something similar to do with the the, the ethos of the kingdom that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. Large crowds, they come, they bring him the lame, the crippled, the blind, the mute, and many others. They put them at his feet, a sign of devotion, and it says that he heals them all. Verse 31. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. I don't know if you can see it. It's sort of an interesting phrase in there that you don't see elsewhere in the New Testament. Very often it says when Jesus did great things, people would glorify God. But this is, again, one of those little pointers that we're not talking about Jews here. We're talking about Gentiles. And really what it is, it comes from, it seems to be alluding to a, a, a text from Isaiah 45, 15, where it talks about the nations are going to come to Israel and bow down and bring their wealth. And Jesus, of course, as we have shared, is the true Israel. And they're going to say, surely you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. And so they start glorifying this great God of Israel. Something that's not happening by the leaders in Israel. Which then leads us to the time of the feeding of the 4,000. Verse 32. Then Jesus calls the disciples to him. And he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now, this is not just a repeat of another miracle. It's a repeat with a point. The first time Jesus fed the multitude, it was the 5,000. And we are told elsewhere that he actually fed them near Bethsaida. That's a Jewish city. So he fed them essentially in Israel. Here, though, he says that he's feeding them in an area that seems a lot further away. Um, they've been with him three days, and they, and, and they can't just kind of get up and, and, and kind of walk to the around surrounding uh, towns. Um, when he fed the 5,000, that's why the disciples say, well, let's just let them go and they'll get food at the surrounding towns because Bethsaida, which is the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip, it's right there. And then they can continue around. They're only four or five miles from Capernaum. 
And then there's Chorazin. And there's a whole lot of other places there. But here, they can't do that. And again, it points to this being that those who glorify the God of Israel are also now those being fed as largely Gentiles. Also, if you look at the numbers, and we don't have time to deal with a lot, a lot of that this morning, um, of the, the 5,000 of the Jews, um, the, the number 12 is very important, which is the number of Israel, and 7 intensifies it. In this one, the 4,000. 4 is the number of Gentiles, the four corners of the world. It represents the, the nations. And again, the number 7 intensifies that. But it says that Jesus felt compassion on the crowd. Again, mentioned only three times in the scriptures. Once when he sends out his disciples to start the little commission to the Israel. And then once before he fed the 5,000 and once here. And this one, the other ones that said he felt compassion, but here it says he has to maybe tell the disciples this because these are Gentiles. You don't know what the conversation is going. What are we doing with these? They're all like this Canaanite woman. But it said, I feel compassion for them. It was, they were in a large, a, a desolate area, and we know the story. He divides the loaves and the fish. He sits the people. He gives thanks. He divides the bread. He gives it to the disciples, and they in turn give it to the people, which is going to be their mission from that point forward, dividing the word of God. And then finally in chapter 15, verses 38 and 39, those who, were ate, those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got in the boat and he went to the region of Magadan, which is south of uh, Capernaum. Church, when God wants to show his favor, his goodness, he often uses food or he often uses a meal. Eden was filled with fruit. The promised land was a place of milk and honey. The wilderness was the place of the manna and the quail. There are many of the feasts of Israel is what they're called. We have the Lord's Supper as anticipating something great, which is ultimately the great feast of the new creation. When death is swallowed up altogether at that last meal. Revelation calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says, blessed are those who are invited to that supper. Israel longed for that messianic feast. Our text today is a foretaste of it. He, in a sense, is setting a table before the Jews at one point and now before the Gentiles in the wilderness. But even before that, he feeds the Canaanite woman with a crumb, in a sense. And even the crumbs of God's grace can fill the entire world with eternal satisfaction. So one of our commentators made the, the clear point. He said there's basically two questions here that Jesus is answering. The first is, who's invited to the master's table? Well, the answer is everyone, Jew and Gentile. They're all invited. It was a shock to the Jews to figure this out, and we know enough of the disciples, it's a shock to them as they process this. They're still having to process it, after Jesus is gone, when we see some of the things going, between, going on between Peter and Paul. But the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, 28 and 29. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male. There is no female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this would make the Jews of the time choke. But he says, but if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. 
heirs according to the promise. I don't know if the Canaanite woman knew anything of the promise given to, Can uh, given to Abraham, but she knows what she had heard. Heirs according to the promise given to Abraham. You know, the Great Commission follows the resurrection and then the, uh, 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 the, the, the ascension. Cross, resurrection, and ascension. At this time, the, the, you could view the, the um, Gentiles as, in a sense, the pets. They're getting the crumbs. But they are getting blessed. But one day, we are told, they're going to be, every, in every way, equal with every believer. The children of God. Even as the, John says, all those who receive him and believe upon him. Those who are his own did not do that. But those that will do that have the right to be called the children of God. You want to know where you see the great faith in the gospel accounts and it looks forward to the time that we believe? The Magi who traveled hundreds of miles because of this one born to be king with a centurion we talked about. At the end of the gospel, there's one more centurion who watches Jesus die on the cross and he confesses the other's son word. Truly, this was the son of God. That's another one. Who calls him the son of God but God and the devil in Matthew? Primarily them. Until this centurion says, truly this is the son of God. And this Canaanite woman who had great faith. And so Paul, uh, Paul says also in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Which takes us to the second point. How do we get into the banquet? The answer is... Faith in Jesus as Lord. Faith alone in Christ alone. The Bible doesn't spend a lot of time trying to define faith. I think our brother, when he prayed today, he mentioned Hebrews 11. There's something of it right there. James tries almost by saying what it is and what it's not. But mostly the Bible just gives a bunch of interesting pictures of faith. And that's what we have today. A wonderful example of it. This Canaanite woman, we break it down, she certainly recognizes her need. The first thing she says is, have mercy upon me, O Lord. She understands everything she has is weakness. The Pharisees had the same weakness, they just didn't know it. But she didn't just have her need, it's not enough. She also had a certain understanding. The object of her faith is the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. It wasn't that she said great faith. She's not just a person of faith, but she's a person who put her faith in this one Lord, the son of David. And finally, there's one thing we see is Luke talked about persistent prayer and faith. This is a, she is persistent. She says, this is the most important thing to me, more important than anything else. And as Luke says, the one who knocks, the one who asks, the one who seeks, that one will receive the Holy Spirit from God. So church, what do we see today? The gospel is given to all. For God so loved the world that he gave his son to both the lost sheep of Israel and to the lost dogs of the Canaanites and everybody in between. And it's contrasted with, and contrasted with the cold heart of unbelief of the Jewish leaders and the struggling trust of the disciples, there really is a good and a great faith that hears that whatever or that whoever believes upon him will not perish but have eternal life. 
So fellow Gentiles, rejoice for God's hidden plan. Um, this is his word. And this it is his promise. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, and it is thanks be to God. Your great plan is indeed our great salvation. We pray, Father, that we see it, that we embrace it, um, that we indeed are persistent in seeking it out, out of our need and out of the object of our great faith, Jesus, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.